Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have our top 10 for Theros Beyond Death. If you are a patron of the cast, you probably got to hear our pre-cast conversation that we released for patrons only, where we had a nice little discussion about what cards we thought would be on our top 10 and try to argue our points to each other. We made a lot of concessions and uh, I think we had a pretty good discussion overall. And like, you know, I, I had my experience of things. You had your experience and I think we got to a happy place. Found some common ground. It was a little dicey there. There was like 10 minutes and when you listen to this, you'll see where we were just screaming at each other and it looked like the future of this podcast was in dire dire jeopardy. I wasn't sure if we were ever going to be able to put our differences behind us and come back and record another episode, but somehow we overcame and we made a consensus top 10 for the first time. Very different from how we usually do this process. Yeah. I mean, the folks at home are lucky that we both have a shared love of the game and Mm. only thing bringing us back together. Yeah. We're not going to let that stop us from making this podcast every week. I mean, we, we can barely even stand each other at this point already. So if I only have to talk to you here, I think we can continue to make this work. Just next time we're in like the same room, just, I mean, I still would like to share hotels and stuff when we travel. That's very convenient for me, but let's just not talk the entire time. <laughs> Dude, we, we both have noise canceling headphones. I mean, it, it's, right. it's not even a big deal, you know, and thankfully neither of us really ever leave our houses. So it's all good. <laughs> right. Very simple. Anyway, Consensus top 10. This is the top 10 that Brian and I have both decided on. I think that overall, we are both very happy with it. And as always, things will likely change. We'll you know probably be five cards off, if not more, and want to change our list by a lot in the next week or so. But we'll see. You know, we, We've both been building a bunch of decks. We watched some of the streamer showcase thingy that happened on Arena and... After talking to each other, figuring out what the other person was working on, what they thought uh, had merit and everything, I think we got to a pretty good place and we kind of know what's going on in this format. I think so too. And I'll say also, if we have made mistakes, we probably addressed the potential for mistakes on our intro show when we were figuring this out. Like We know the possibilities where this could possibly go wrong, where we're taking some shots, what cards we might be making a mistake by leaving off. We've considered that. It's tough to put these top 10 together lists, top 10 lists together. And of course, they're an imperfect process. Like This is not really meant to be the final definitive list of the top 10 cards in the set. It's supposed to be entertaining and a vehicle for us to talk about where we see the format going in the future. So if we're off by a few, I'm fine with that. I, I am pleased with what we have come up with. No, I, I want to get to the point where I do a top 10 show and I'm just like, this Not is possible. it. This is it. Definitive. Not possible. The end. It just can't happen because then, then there wouldn't be any more magic. Like if it was that easy to answer the question, we'd, we wouldn't even be here. N- no, I want to get to the point where I can do that and no one else can. Okay. In that case, Wizards should just hire you. Start throwing money at you. Back up the money truck to your house. You know, they tried that. It didn't take. Mm, interesting. <laughs> Next mean, time they'll yeah. get you. What, what can I say? It just it didn't work out. So to, to <laughs> kick us off, we have two honorable mentions. Both cards, I think, are very near and dear to both of our hearts. And it's probably just because they draw cards and don't really do a whole lot else. So uh, I am going to 
read the cards. We did not read the cards on the previous show because we we're just having a, a nice little conversation. And this will probably be the last time that we read cards from Theros going forward. Sound good? Right. Okay. Yes. Metamized Prophecy. One U, Enchantment Saga, Chapter 1, Scry 2, Chapter 2, Choose a Card Name, that's all. <laughs> Which is pretty dope. Chapter 3. Weird chapter. Chapter 3, when you cast a spell with the chosen name for the first time this turn, draw two cards. Chapter 4, look at the top card of each player's library. So uh, a lot of chapters. Ideally, this is Scry 2, Draw 2, and then second to Doom Foretold or something. Maybe bounce it with the fairy for even more nonsense, but uh, two mana, sorcery speed, sort of like slow trip kind of divination. But I, I think that that is good enough to see constructed play. And especially if there are any sort of things that you can do surrounding this card, like either bouncing it, recurring it, uh, you have enchantment ETP trigger, something like that, thirst for meaning, whatever, like it just makes it even more better. Yeah, there's so many synergies around the enchantment subtype in this set, obviously. And even if this was just a two mana, very, very slow draw two, it would be acceptable. When you kick in all the cards that interact favorably with this card, it gets into the, this could make waves in constructed territory. I passed on this card the first time I read it just because it looks so, so weird. Your deck should be built in a fashion where you can always, always, always draw two. If your deck is all reactive spells, it's challenging to play this card for sure. So don't think this can go clean into blue-white control with a million counter spells and all answers. You do have to make some deck building concessions around this card. But once you do, I do think this is sufficiently powerful to earn our honorable mention slot. Yeah, absolutely. I And I, I agree with you. I do think that this is a card that is more likely to show up in something like tap out style control deck like Grixis more so than it is to show up in something like blue white control. But there are some proactive ways uh, to do this. Like even if it's just like casting opt or whatever, I mean, hopefully at that point you don't have to discard the hand size or something, but ideally you've played some sort of removal spell or interaction at that point. So I think this can show up in more, more spots, but yeah, some sort of uh, like Bant Enchantments deck or Grixis, uh, Demir Midrange, stuff like that. I think that this card has a home. With you. Uh, other honorable mention, uh, Treacherous Blessing, 2B Enchantment. Uh, when this enters the battlefield, draw three cards. Whenever you cast a spell, you lose one life. When this becomes the target of a spell or ability, sacrifice it. So three mana, draw three. With some downside, this reminded me initially of something like Demonic Pact, where it was like, that card was obviously super powerful, but it was also very difficult to remove given the cards that were available in the format. And I don't want to say it's trivial to remove this card, but it is certainly a lot easier than it was to get rid of it than Demonic Pact. And this card doesn't cause you to lose the game straight up like Demonic Pact did. Yeah, we talked a lot about the bizarre spells and abilities that do a good job of dealing with this. I also think I may have at one point talked about bouncing it back to your hand with Teferi, which quite obviously does not work, but that's besides the point. No, I mean, it it does work with Teferi, right? Yeah, you just don't get to rebuy it. Kind of. You also don't get to draw your Teferi card at that point either. That is true. That is pretty meh. But yeah, the real thing we were hyped about was Doom Foretold. Playing this into Doom Foretold is just awesome. You're never, ever going to run out of gas. And then you can do like graveyard rebuys in various ways. 
uh, maybe Dance of the Mance type stuff. Although we talked a bunch about how we think maybe the Doom Foretold deck's going to start shifting away from Dance of the Mance setups, and that makes sense to me. But you mentioned things like put a Heliod counter on this, which kind of blew my mind and wasn't something I was really considering. And what were some of the other cool ones you talked about as ways to mitigate Treacherous, treacherous Blessing's downside? Well, in the case of Heliod, I specifically mentioned the life gain lands like Scoured Barons, where it's just like you don't mm-hmm. actually need a whole lot of setup for it. But uh, Enigmatic Incarnation was another one where it's right. just like, yeah, that's that's clean, right? Like you just get to sack it for value, get a four drop creature, and then you still have the Incarnation. You have a bunch of cards in your hand. Obviously, you didn't do anything to affect the board really on turn three. So that turn four needs to to catch you up ideally. Uh, you can blast zone your own stuff. There's final payment. And now there's enough stuff that you actually just don't mind sacrificing to something like final payment. Yeah. And there's probably worlds too, where you're just doing enough where you're happy to eat the life loss. The three cards are going to be something where you can easily mitigate, you know, the loss of four or five, six, seven, even 10 life over the course of the game. If your deck is set up properly. So right. I think this one is destined to see some play as well. Again, a card you have to build around, consider it's not just strict card advantage that you can jam in any deck. So didn't quite crack into our top tens, but we were both intrigued by the possibilities around both of these cards. Yeah, Cavalier Dawn is the other good one because you can blow it up. Mm. Oh, I guess I guess it's the same thing as Teferi, though, where you don't you get, won't get your 3-3. Three, three. But you do get to blow it up yeah. and then you do get to rebuy it. So, yeah. Okay. So definitely worth noting there. Uh, it is very clear that we have not actually played with these cards yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. On to the actual top 10 list. Uh, number 10, I needed some convincing on this one. This is, I believe it is called Shatter the Sky. Two dub dub sorcery. Each player who controls a creature with power four or greater draws a card, then destroy all creatures. If you have a Heliod, this is, well, it has to be a Heliod that is active. Uh, but then it's not necessarily all upside, but it's pretty close to upside, right? And then maybe everyone else has a bunch of, you know, three power stuff and it's not that bad. Or you're just wrathing away a bunch of small things and this is just straight up wrath of God. And the thing that gave me pause is where the hell is this going to show up? I think there will be a high burden on these newish fringy type decks that we are often talking about to be able to account for the snowballs that we will see. Now, Standard was already very snowball-y coming into this set's release. A mechanic like Devotion hard incentivizes building towards the battlefield and your cards scaling over time. So when you're trying to account for that, you need some way of resetting the battlefield. Talked a bunch about Storm's Wrath versus this particular Wrath effect ultimately decided the white one more likely to influence games. If you watched any of the streamer showcase, you certainly saw these battlefields overrun with creatures. And look, that's what happens in the streamer showcase. There's no sideboards. So you just go really hard into super linear approaches. It's like playing best of one again, which we all know how that worked out. Good times. So yeah, not so much, but when... When that's the mode of play, obviously you're going to be incentivized to look to control battlefields, but it just makes sense given how existing standard works and given the incentives present in this set that there will be a high, high barrier to entry for controlling style decks, for decks that are built upon non-devotion-based synergies to make sure their opponent isn't doing their thing unchecked. And oftentimes with devotion... You can't give your opponent that one turn because you'll just be too far behind. And even with things like uh, Nissa decks, we see that effect as well. 
So the fact that this wrath costs four, where time wipe costs five, is actually a huge breakpoint. And your first instinct is like, well, time wipe is all upside. Why don't I just play that card all the time? Four is going to matter a lot. You're going to need this sweeper on four. So I see this scene. Some play, it's certainly on the lower end of our top 10 list. I don't think it's a format defining card, but it's one to keep track of and will be important for slowing down what everyone else is doing. And if you're not convinced that the difference between four and five mana is a lot, think about one card. That card is Grey Merchant of Asphodel. Hmm. That's it. Like, yeah. if, if you get to sweep them... Tells you exactly what you're preventing. If you get to sweep them the turn before they play Grey Merchant, cool. If you don't, you're going to lose. GG. Yeah. Yep. So it, the, the four mana does matter a lot. I still have the question of where is this going to show up, uh, especially since a lot of the decks where I've wanted Wrath, I've been able to incorporate Kaya's Wrath or Deafening Clarion or something along those lines. Obviously, Clarion has its own set of issues and... Uh, you were talking about like some Bant enchantment setups that might want this uh, more so than Time Wipe, but it also depends on how you're building your deck where if you have Wolf Willow Haven or Gift of Paradise, something like that, they can also accelerate you in a Time Wipe. Maybe that is still just a better card for your deck, but this this card is going to show up for sure. Yep. On to number nine, we have Satessan Champion. We did not talk about this much on... The pre-show, this is 2G for a 1-3 creature, human warrior, constellation. Whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on this and draw a card. This is enchantment, not just aura. So like all the enchantment creatures in the set. And that was that was kind of a nightmare to go through and like learn which ones were actually enchantment creatures and which ones weren't. Right. And this card just breaks so hard, so fast, and snowballs out of control. If you get to untap with Satessan Champion, your opponent's in a world of hurt. And in general, when we're looking at creatures and magic now, we look for immediate impact. Satessan Champion is lacking that. I wrote about this card, I mean, it's probably like five weeks ago now. It was very, very early on in the Theros preview season. And I talked about that as one of its biggest flaws. Like It's just not how creatures work in magic these days. You need immediate value. But the fact that Satessan Champion does this for only three mana, it feels like a lot of times these champions with the tacked on abilities where you need to untap and then they take over the game usually come at four. Three is very low cost and the body gets so big on this that there's some setups that other decks just can't beat. Like if you were relying on damage base removal and a Satessan Champion is slow rolled and becomes a 2-4 or 3-5 very quickly, things like Storm's Wrath or Deafening Clarion are just not going to be able to take this card off the battlefield, and the game is going to end very quickly for your opponent. Right, and there are also things you can do where you play like a Paradise Druid on turn two, play this and a Sentinel's Eye or you know some one-mana card in addition to it on turn three, and that's one way that you mitigate the downside a little bit, where you actually do get to play it and accrue some value and still force them to kill it. Because if they don't kill it, if they if they let you untap with it, you are going to snowball super hard. Yeah, setups with like the white Alcyid where you're able to not only draw a card, but also protect champion via the sacrifice ability on the Alcyid. Am I pronouncing that right, by the way? Uh, Alcyid? Yeah, I I was in my mind, I was reading it as Alcyid, but Alcyid kind of makes sense. I don't know. Whatever, it doesn't matter. You know what card I'm talking about. One white, one colorless sacrifice, target creature or enchantment gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. Obviously plays very well with Satessan Champion. 
Yeah, uh, Google Docs was trying to tell me that that was not a word. So I have no idea how to pronounce it. Yeah, also Microsoft Word is presently showing that as not a word. So I, I guess it is somewhat made up. So we'll just make up the pr pronunciation as well. Dude, it's all made up. All the decks are made up. All the cards are made up. Very true. It's great. Where do you think that this card is going to show up? Like, is there an obvious home for this? Like, what sort of decks are you supposed to be building around this? Well, that's the thing about this card is I actually think there's a bunch of homes. So you can do the typical all-in on auras, all that glitters type setup, or you can do this with the black one-drop enchantment creature that whenever something dies wearing an aura, you draw a card and you can use dead weight and the uh, two black removal spell that gives a creature minus three, minus three as a source of card advantage. You can do it with doom foretold setups. We're talking about all these enchantments that really empower doom foretold. Play it with sagas, draw cards. The fact that it's not targeted around a specific type of enchantment and enchantments now do so much in the format. They are creatures. They are removal spells. They are sources of card advantage. It really diversifies how many homes Satessan Champion is apt to have. I really like the Doom Foretold setups, which feels a little weird because Satessan Champion is somewhat incongruent with the game plan you expect to be pursuing there. But it's just such a positive source of card advantage, and it plays defense so well. So I think there's actually diverse homes for a card like this. And usually when an effect like this shows up, you expect the homes to be really narrow. I remember when Eidolon of Blossoms was around. Most Eidolon of Blossoms decks looked very similar. I think Satessan Champion being only one green, two colorless, a three drop as opposed to a four drop means this is going to point in a lot more directions. And the card impressed a lot when I was watching the streamer showcase for sure. I actually didn't get to see it in play at all, which was kind of disappointing because I wanted to see what other people were trying to do with it. I think I've built, you know, five, six, seven decks with this card and it's they, all of them seem fine. You know, like mm -hmm. one of them is even just like a, a mono green beatdown deck where you have a couple decent two mana auras. You have the fight one and then the cantripping one. You have first Rowan games. You have a four mana aura that gives plus four, plus four. And when your thing dies, you make two wolves and it's just like, yeah, okay, right. let's just, let's just try this, you know? And then just get big, like said, yeah. Yeah. There's the obvious setups with all that glitters and, you know, maybe you don't even go that hard into auras. Maybe you just play angelic gift and sentinel's eyes and some enchantment creatures, you know, and you just use this as like a value prop. You can just do that too. Like this card is super versatile. Yeah, the enchantment creatures look quite good. There are strong ones in this set. We're going to talk more about that as we move throughout, obviously. So I like just playing this card and surrounding it with other very good cards without being hyperlinear as cards of this fashion often are. Yeah, like Siona, for example, right? Like she, she only cares about auras and right. like putting auras on things and going a little bit wider and stuff. And it's like, no, nah, I don't really want to be doing that. You know, just let me let me play my urban utopia and draw two cards and give you the beatdowns. Satessan Champion is here for that, 100%. Oh, yeah. All right, on to number eight. We have Croxa, Titan of Death's Hunger. BR66, Legendary Creature, Elder Giant. When this enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. When this enters the battlefield or attacks, each opponent discards a card. Then each opponent who didn't discard a non-land card this way loses three life, escape, BBRR, exile five other cards from your graveyard. I'm scared of this one. I am scared that I am overrating Croxa. And you read that card and it just seems like, how could I possibly be overrating this? It's 
so cheap, can do so much damage in so many situations. And all of that stuff had me super hyped. And I think if I had done this top 10 list, even like two, two to three days ago, I would be arguing this as a top three card in the set, possibly. It's starting to fall down just because I'm being reminded of just how snowball this format is. And I've lived this dream of setting up a resource denial type setup for so long. And I just don't know if it's actually viable. The first thing I am going to do as soon as I am playing on Arena when the set goes live is just jam a bunch of, bunch of games with Croxa and better understand the card. And I think it'll become very apparent to me very quickly what this card is capable of. But in its best form, it takes away so, so much from your opponent in terms of resources. And it just does so much damage. It will end the game so quickly if you build around it in a fashion where your opponent is unable to put forth a battlefield presence and you ever get to attack with this, it has the potential to end the game in two swings, really. I mean, if your opponent is at a low resource state and you've gotten three damage the first time you played it and then you escaped it and it just closes doors so fast while simultaneously interacting on the resource axis. So theoretically, all this stuff has this card really high in my rankings. I think in practice, it's going to get outscaled a lot. And that's what I'm really afraid of right now. All right, three things. First is turn one, which is oven, turn two, this thing. Love it. That's tight, right? You get two foods yeah. out of the deal, too. Food. Yeah, I, I think most of my decks using this card have been with Witch's Oven as well. Okay, yeah, so that's not surprising. Uh, it, it might seem like a small deal, but when you're talking about cat oven setups, like there, there are times where you just like run out of food or you want to sack your cats yeah. to do other things and... You don't have enough food to actually bring them back, but this is, and also it's just, it's so hard to get like a four toughness thing in a lot of these decks, right? So this is just a constant source of like massive food output alongside Witch's Oven. Second thing, one of the decks I built with this card, Mardu Hero. Okay, very cool. I got to like 20 cards I really liked and then was like, crap. <laughs> I just, I ran out. Uh, like I can I can fill out a deck list for sure, but it's not 100% ideal. But like you get uh, Croxa, Carnival, Carnage, and Basilica Bellhaunt, which I mean together that's a lot of four mana stuff because Croxa is effectively a four mana card later on. So, mm -hmm. but you do end up with a lot of resource denial. I've actually liked this a lot in like I don't know if I want to refer to them as like. Ox of Agonis decks or Arclay Phoenix decks, but just Red Black has a ton of very cheap spells like Vicious Rumors, again, Carnival Carnage, this thing. And I went so far as to try and just build like almost all in discard decks with Davriel and stuff like that. And just same. Try, yeah. Yeah. Try and force your opponent to play as much of a low econ game as possible. And I, I, I'm right there with you. I don't know if those setups are actually viable or not, but I'm going to try. Yeah, I'm just scared of like an Oro into Nissa, into what, who cares, Hydroid Crisis, and I've wasted the first four turns of the game accomplishing actual nothing. Right. Yeah, the, the, the final thing is I don't know that red-black mid-range type of stuff as much as I love it and as much as I try to build around it, especially when there's a very appealing card like Croxa, like those, those decks just never end up being good. Right. I mean, you can make the case right. for like the, the chain whirler 
scrap heap scrounger red black deck, but that was a beatdown deck. You know, like don't don't get it twisted. That was that was a mono red deck that had a lot of very very good cards, but the whole like red black mid range grind him out and then kill them with a dragon or a elder giant in this case, those decks just end up not really working. And I think that this particular standard format is a lot more hostile towards that type of strategy than we've seen previously. Agreed. Agreed. I guess I'll, I'll put forth one more point in favor of Croxa. Multiples are really good, which is weird. You wouldn't necessarily expect that, but it's totally fine to just burn additional copies of this. And like, if you have the graveyard density, just escape more copies into play to restrict your opponent's options. You don't really mind things dying to the legend rule when you get immediate payoff from it. And to that point, I've also been happy with the combination with Nightmare Shepherd as well. A little bit of spoilers. We're going to talk more about that card. But okay. there, there are fine setups where you don't really mind just dumping all of your mana and this one resource into Kroxa because you've denied three cards from your opponent in some instances. And you are able to catch up in those spots where they've done even like a, a mid-range Hydroid Crisis and drawn two to three cards. You can power through that with multiple Croxas. And most of my decks containing Croxa, you would think it's legendary. Oh, you probably don't want that many copies. Also escape. So you find one copy, you theoretically have it for the rest of the game, but I've still been playing four copies of Croxa. And I think that is going to prove to be correct. Yeah, that's legit. Uh, One thing I will note from watching some of the streamer showcase is that in the case of Yerix Fenlurker, I have noticed that people are just not used to playing around like, you know, each opponent discards a card. They just aren't. Mm. And with with things like Hydrocrasis, right? It's it's just always been like, oh, well, you know, like we should just play out all of our extra lands. You know, like that is just a thing that we should do. And un- unless you're trying to save it for like Cavalier of Flame or whatever, something like that. Right. And I, it, it's, you know, it's not going to take that long, right? Like people are going to realize that these are things they're they're going to have to play around like vicious rumors and Fenlurker and Croxa. Like that is just kind of a, a feature of the format now, but for the first week, like you're, you're going to get people, your Croxas are going to be way better than they have any business being. Let's amend that. You're going to get people who don't listen to the arena Deckless podcast. And then honestly, they deserve to get got like, if you're well, not, you're listening right now. It's, it's one thing. It's one thing to realize like, oh, I need to pay attention to this. And it's another thing to actually incorporate it into your game, right? Like those are separate things. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens to people like, hell, I, w- I won't be surprised if it happens to me. I'm playing in Richmond in a couple of weeks. Uh, thankfully, I believe I'm in the modern seat, you know, so I don't have to deal with that. Mm. And it, it can be Nick Prince who gets the chance to maybe make a mistake and look foolish. We'll see. Uh, you say you don't have to deal with it, Gerald, but who knows what psychopaths will talk themselves into playing this card in Jund. And then maybe you will have to deal with it. Well, I'll be used to it in modern, like playing against Liliana the Veil and stuff like that. You know, I think I think my autopilot is good enough to handle that. Sure, maybe, sure. Yeah, maybe, it's already on your radar as soon as you see those swamps on the other side of the battlefield. Right. And I don't know, maybe I'll just have a bunch of, bunch of bounce lands in my deck and always have seven cards in my hand and won't have to worry about it. So who knows? Probably will be the case. I'm, I'm sure with their one to three copies of Fulminator Mage, they'll beat me though. That is how you do it. Once you put in that first copy, you've already swung the match up like 30, 40%. So sometimes you don't even need the second and third copy. 
Yeah. That, that was a joke. And also that was a reference to a tweet that Brian made for people who are listening and are just like, what the hell are you talking about? Love it. Love the callbacks to things that very few people know about. Number seven, my invitational card, Ox of Agonis, 3RR, 4-2, Creature Ox. When this enters the battlefield, discard your hand, then draw three cards, escape, RR, exile eight other cards from your graveyard. This escapes with a plus one, plus one counter on it. Love this card. I think there are so many good setups and it is a dream to brew around because you can look to basically all angles of gameplay. You can look for more combo focused builds. You can look for more uh, mid-range style builds with Ox of Agonis. The, the best stuff you're going to be doing though are going is going to leverage the fact that you are happy to discard a bunch of cards. I know you've been doing a lot with Phoenix and this card, right? Yeah, I mean, they're they're both trying to do the same thing. And for the most part, the Phoenix decks would put a bunch of cards in their graveyard and then they would just sort of live there. I mean, like they power up your Crackling Drake and Ral is it Viceroy or whatever. Uh, maybe you have Finale of Promise in your deck. But for the most part, you did not really get to utilize your graveyard as a resource. And I think that Ox of Agonis is a very good complement to the Phoenix plan. And... Like I said, uh, I think Black Red has enough cheap cantrips and uh, just overall like filtering and card advantage, stuff like that, that you can bring back Arclight Phoenix with regularity. And then at that point, you have Ox of Agonis or Croxo, however you choose to actually try and kill them. Uh, I personally like Ox a little bit more, but I feel like you can play you know, like five to six copies of these escape cards and still be fine. Like you're not going to be able to activate each of them multiple times per game, but you'll have the option of which one you get to use. Luckily, they're so strong that you probably won't have to activate them all that many times. They are apt to often win the game on the spot. That's also fair. One thing I have started brewing around with Ox of Agonis that I haven't heard anyone else talk about, maybe maybe because it's complete nonsense, one of the features of the gods is that they are often indestructible, very, very difficult for your opponent to remove. So you can start thinking about them as ways to establish an engine, like an almost fires of invention type card. Thassa Blinking Ox actually has a ton of appeal if you build your deck around that interaction. The refresh of three new cards every single turn can be very, very meaningful. I've worked with some weird like blue-red tempo-ish decks built around Thassa and Ox of Agonis where you're mostly not even interested in Thassa ever becoming a creature. It's just blinking this thing repeatedly is enough in conjunction with the other stuff in your deck. I want to explore that a lot more. There's obvious modern applications in Ox of Agonis and Dredge. We don't consider that when making these lists, but I'd be sad if I didn't point that out. And I think we're just on the tip of the iceberg with Ox of Agonis. The effect of find three new cards far too powerful, especially when it's coming from your graveyard for just two mana. And you can go hard in graveyards in this format. You can do Merfolk Secret Keeper. You can do, what is the blue, one blue, one colorless enchantment. Drown Secrets. That every time you cast a blue spell, Drown Secrets. You can do that kind of stuff. There's Wall of Lost Thoughts, which has come up in some places for me. Another and, solid Thassa blink target. Right, right. And so that was certainly part of my setup when I had Ox, uh, Wall of Lost Thoughts, Ox. All this stuff is just to point out there are a ton of roads you can go down with a card that 
has a pedigree on its face. We've seen this effect stapled to Bedlam Reveler. Granted, you often cast that for two, but there's a mode where you get to cast Ox for two, and I am here for it 100%. Dude, I don't want to cast Ox from my hand. I just don't. Ideally, you will not be, Gerald. I hope all of your Oxes come from the graveyard. Dude, me too. Thank you. Over and over. Thrill of possibility, merchant, tons of ways to set up an Ox from the graveyard. Yeah. Uh, Rick's Mighty Reveler is another decent one. Nice, yeah. And with Cat Oven, it's pretty easy to turn on the whatchamacallit. Spectacle, yeah. That's the one. Boom. All right, number six. The first Eroin Games 2G Enchantment Saga Chapter 1. Create a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. Why do these green cards make white creatures? It is odd. Uh, Chapter 2. Put three plus one plus one counters on target creature you control. Chapter three, if you control a creature with power four or greater, draw two cards. Chapter four, create a gold token. I like this chapter four more than Metamized Prophecy. Mm. Overall, make a one-one for your Lovestruck Beast. Put three counters on a thing and just give your opponent the beatdowns. It's pretty nice. And then you just get a clean draw two if your opponent has not managed to stabilize. I mean, at that point, you just got to be winning, right? Yeah, that's big for your green deck. And one of the hugest interactions this card has to stand on is how well it interacts with the Great Henge. One of our top cards from Throne of Eldraine ultimately got overshadowed by a lot of other stuff, but is now returning to the metagame in, I would say, decent numbers at this point. But I think the first Rowan game is going to do a lot to push it forward. I mean, this card is just good contained on its face, right? Like you get your two cards, you get your four, four creature for three mana. It's slow, but that's totally acceptable when the payoff is this large. And that four, four kind of has haste, right? Because you played the one, one on the last turn. So it's kind of just like a four, four for three at base value. And then as these other abilities start to come into play and you move the counters around to better targets to enable things like the Great Henge, it just gets better and better. So it's possible this card is even a little low on this list. I could see this being a really important part of beatdown in the future. I will say that beatdown seems to be trending down right now. The setups to do other flashier things are very, very good, which probably influences its position on this list. But still, six, not a bad showing. I feel like this card's being slept on a little bit. I don't see a lot of people talking about the first Rowan games right now. Well, there aren't a lot of people who I think comb... The, the full preview of a set and are just like, what are the sweetest beatdown decks I can build, you know? Well, I certainly don't do that. And still, the first Rowan games really popped to me as a card that had a ton of utility in the format. I would also point, while we're talking plus one, plus one counters, Embercleave. It's very easy to put together lethal Embercleaves when you've made your whatever you're pumping up. It's got three more counters on it, so Embercleave far more likely to just kill your opponent in one shot. You'd love to see that when you're building Embercleave decks, for sure. Dude, put some counters on your Incubation Druid. Make infinite mana. Do whatever. A lot of options. Yeah, this card has hella Growth Chamber Guardian. You want, you want more Growth Chamber Guardians? You can go get those now. Enjoy your counters. Green Sir, how about, how about your pumping, the rest of your team? A lot of things to do with these counters. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I, I think the reason this card stuck out for you and why it was initially not on my top 10, but like definitely, you know, my top 15, top 20, was the interaction with the Great Hinge. And I think yes, that's, that's sure. going to be huge. 
I do foresee some instances where if you don't get to trigger chapter three on this card, if you don't get to draw the two cards, it is a little anemic. Like if you just like play out a threat and then play out uh, first row in games, they kill your creature, kill whatever you put the counters on. I mean, I guess if you don't have a follow-up at that point, then you're probably just going to lose anyway. But like th- there are situations where they can actually keep you off a four power creature, right? And then this card doesn't do a whole lot. So you are sort of leaning on that. But I think that those situations are few and far between. Yeah. And I think in those spots, you're not any worse off than you would have been had they answered any other three drop creature. Like say I play Yorvo as opposed to the first Erowan games and they kill Yorvo or bounce Yorvo. I mean, that's even worse. They they have cleanly found an answer. At least here you've come up with a mana and with Yorvo, you get nothing. God, the Erowan games doesn't pump Yorvo because it makes a white creature. So silly. Mm, that is true. I'm off it. Take it off the list. <laughs> now it's unplayable. Get it off the list. No, no. I think I think this card is uh, pretty good in Gruel. That, that deck does have mm-hmm. a lot of free drops. So this has a lot of competition, but Gruel could use a clean draw too. Absolutely. I think there are setups where this is just like a splash card and something like a mono white aggro deck or what have you. You talked about mono green. I think there are a lot of different ways to build that. There's the Tessin champion setups. Like there's a lot of different things you can do with this card. Agreed. All right. Moving on to number five, Clothis, God of Destiny, one RG, four, five, legendary enchantment creature, God, indestructible. As long as your devotion to red and green is less than seven, Clothis isn't a creature. At the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, exile target card from a graveyard. If it was a land, add R or G. Otherwise, you gain two life, and this deals two damage to each opponent. This doesn't ever have to be a creature to be an f- acceptable card. When it is a creature, it is bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. You're generating so much damage and indestructible sulfuric vortex if your opponent is trying to utilize the graveyard and actually return things from there you have a huge huge leg up on them while not taking away from the typical gruel plan of just damaging your opponent and killing them to say nothing of the life gain so you're winning every race now my broadcast partner craig kremples he gets a lot of credibility at least for one more set for identifying really good cards because he was the one who saw Oko and lost his mind. Like he was the first person who was absolutely outraged by the card and couldn't believe it was printed (laughs) as it was that I came across. He feels not quite, I wouldn't say similarly, but he does believe Clothis is the best card in this entire set. So I'll give him some credit because he's off a really good call. Uh, I'm not going to go that far, but it's very easy to see the use cases for this card because it doesn't really have a fail state. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you only need five extra devotion and a lot of the cards that make you want to play Gruul are Gruul cards. So curving like Zyrtog Goblin into this, maybe Mm -hmm. someone cracked a fabled passage and then you get to play like a Spellbreaker and some other card and like this is online already. And then like you said, Sulfuric Vortex, that's what this card does. And God, the, the gain to life too just seems extraneous. I don't know. It's it is very, very powerful for actually trying to win races. I think the main reason it can't creep up higher for me is it really only does one thing in one deck. It is a huge upgrade for that one deck, though, and I expect Gruul to pick this up in large numbers. Like you mentioned, the curve outs are just so good. Pelt Collector into Zyrtog Goblin, into this, into anything. 
and this is online ready to beat down. So I don't know if this is enough for Gruel to really get much better in the metagame. Like it, its fundamental problem has always been the mana and this only slightly fixes that and not really in the way you want it to. Uh, maybe this does a good job of enabling some larger Gruel decks. I don't know. I mean, banking on getting that land is, as you mentioned, pretty thin. You basically have to account on Fabled Passage being a large part of your opponent or your mana base. And that's problematic for Gruel as well, especially in the early game when Clothis is looking to really make mana. So I don't know how often that's going to come up. But like I said, Sulfuric Vortex is enough to sell me on this card. And when it turns on, it's just all gravy. No, I, I agree completely. Uh, I do wonder if there are setups where it's like, you know, maybe you're green-black and you splash this as the the third color just because it's so good or whatever. Or if it is just strictly a gruel card, uh, maybe there are like some Naya cards. I would have to like look at the gold cards probably to try and figure out if there are any like three-color homes for this. But... Yeah, the, the mana's not great. I mean, if you're three colors, you're going to have 12 shock lands. You can play Fabled Passage, which would help this card. You have the full set of temples now, which kind of helps Gruul, but not really. I mean, they don't have a huge variety of different one drops, but if you did want to do like edge wall innkeeper stuff, then you'd prefer to just have untapped mana on turn one, I believe. So I don't know. It's not a perfect card to make a top 10 because it's not ubiquitous, but it is going to do one thing and it's going to do that thing super well. For sure. I guess like mono red splashing this card is like where it should show up, but the red cards are all pretty bad. Yeah, that's one thing that really stood out to me while perusing the spoiler repeatedly is that red was not offered a whole lot in this set. And it feels like red is already lagging behind the rest of the format in a lot of ways. So... Expect red to be the new whipping person while white gets a few really, really big boosts in this set. Yeah, I believe that. White has mostly been a support color. I think that is kind of red's job now. Seems like it. All right, on to number four. We have your card, Nightmare Shepherd, 2BB, 4-4, Enchantment Creature Demon, Flying. Whenever another non-token creature you control dies, you may exile it. If you do, create a token that's a copy of that creature, except it's 1-1, and it's a nightmare in addition to its other types. This card just plays so, so well with so many other cards. First of all, the best deck right now is Mono Black Devotion. Now, that assessment means almost nothing because decks are completely unrefined and it could be very easy to build your deck in contemplation of mono black devotion. But if you forced me to go play a tournament right now, a position I have been in before and usually make some good calls, I would play mono black devotion because it just jumps off the page as the most powerful, most versatile thing you could be doing at this early juncture. I think you'll have game against everyone a really powerful proactive game plan. This is 100% the right four drop for Mono Black Devotion. I am sure of that. As long as you're building around a Yara, other cards with a bunch of comes into play abilities that really don't care about how large they are, specifically Grey Merchant of Asphodel, you are in on Nightmare Shepherd. But I think this card can do far more than that. I mentioned Croxa. I think it plays very, very well with the Titans getting three activations in a turn from your Croxa, forcing your opponent to discard three, or if they're hellbent, lose nine life, is just going to end the game in a bunch of spots. And that's the thing about Nightmare Shepherd. Not only are you 
extremely, extremely favored if you get to untap with this card. There's a lot of situations where you just play this card and you win. They usually revolve around a sacrifice outlet, but we have some really, really good ones in this format. One of the things we talked about when making this top 10 list is we kind of see this Nightmare Shepherd slot as a package deal. It should probably contain things like Ephemia, the Cacophony, and, or Cacophony, excuse me, and Woe Strider, another free sacrifice outlet. So you're mushing all these cards together in this number four slot, but Nightmare Shepherd is the one that completely enables insane things, especially alongside any of the sacrifice outlets like Woe Strider or Witch's Oven. The whole cat combo setup being in every conceivable black deck really bodes well for Nightmare Shepherd getting to do stuff because you get to cash in on that Witch's Oven right away and just make a token if you're using a disposable resource. And with a lot of the creatures in the format, that's just as good as the actual body that you would have if you paid full price. Yeah, as far as uh, Nightmare Shepherd representing a lot of the black cards on this top 10, Drag to the Underworld is another one that's solid that right. would probably be outside the top 10, but like it's it's included in that package for sure. We don't do reprints, so otherwise Grey Merchant would just make the list, obviously. But yep. yeah, Wishes Oven, Priest of Forgotten Gods, Ayara, Woestrider, all of these provide a free sacrifice outlet because... My big issue with this card is that it's a, a four mana creature that doesn't necessarily impact the board the turn it comes down, which is very dangerous against spot removal, things like Teferi, etc. But with any sacrifice outlet, you sort of have protection against that. You're probably going to be able to get some amount of value out of it, either just like, you know, right. sacking a Lazatep Reaver or whatever. Like that is going to accomplish something to make it so that your four mana investment was not for nothing. Yeah, so many immediate returns that your opponent really can't interact with once this card comes down. They need to go after the sacrifice outlet. So this plays in very well with that kind of snowball-y, scaly type game plan we expect from present standard, except it's offering it to a color which has been somewhat excluded from that mix until this point. Like, granted, there's things like Cat Oven, which is snowball-y in some ways, but this feels like more of a hammer, where Cat Oven before was very precise, very intricate. This is just going to kill people in so, so many spots. Like a Yara into this, into Grey Merchant is a ludicrous amount of damage from just three cards and a ludicrous amount of life gain, quite frankly, as well. So if you've done anything else in the rest of the game, you're in a good position to win off just that interaction. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, protects you against sweepers too. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. You end up with a small, but generally effective army on the battlefield. Well, I mean, say you were leaning on something like Ayara, right? I mean, it, mm. at least at that point, you basically have your Ayara back. You still have your engine intact, etc. So uh, this this card, definitely more powerful than I gave it credit for initially. And it's just a 4-4 flyer. So not only do right. The, right. The, the synergy setups help kill your opponent very quickly, but if, if for whatever reason that stuff isn't coming together, you have a 4-4 flyer. So that will probably help kill your opponent. Yeah, that's what's craziest about it, is it's still just like this ruthless attacker that has evasion, and I buy into this card wholeheartedly. I saw this previewed, and I was just like, there is some shenanigans you can get up to with this card, and they have all revealed themselves to me. I've probably built more decks around Nightmare Shepherd than any other card right now, uh, maybe one exception, which we're about to get to, but all these decks seem powerful, and like I said, in the case of Mono Black Devotion already ready for prime time you can play that deck today and expect it to perform yes uh, i'm kind of curious about the non mono black devotion setups 
for this card because I haven't quite gone down that rabbit hole, but I'm a believer. Yeah, I mentioned Croxa as like a good black-red thing you can be doing. Like most of them have Witches Oven. Most of them have Sacrifice Outlets. Uh, it's very rare that you're just playing the card face up. Although I have built some like fair Grixis decks where this is just like, it's basically one or two copies of this alongside a bunch of Croxa. And then the typical Grixis things you would expect, a bunch of removal, thought erasure, and you're not all in on this plan. But if you ever get to play a Croxa alongside of it, you just get to basically mind twist your opponent, do a bunch of damage. And the chip damage matters a bunch in a deck like Grixis as well. Oh, yeah. So uh, also can play Lazav there. And if Lazav dies while this is in play, Lazav is just as good. So it provides a little protection. So that's a little bit more fair application of the card, but the all-in sacrifice stuff is what really puts it over over the top for me. Yeah, it's legit. All right, on to number three, we have Heliod, Sun Crowned, two dub, five five, legendary enchantment creature, God Indestructible. As long as your devotion to white is less than five, Heliod is not a creature. Whenever you gain life, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature or enchantment you control. And you can pay one dub to give another target creature lifelink until end of turn. Powerful. Powerful card. It feels like Heliod has unlocked an entire color in a lot of ways. I am actually interested in playing white decks again. Obviously, there are eternal applications in both Pioneer and maybe Modern as well. But not important for Heliod's rating here. The only thing keeping it from occupying an even higher spot on our list, which I do think there we discussed briefly, is this the number one card? Is this the number two card? We ultimately went with number three because it's extremely, extremely linear. It's very hard to maximize Heliod in any builds outside of Mono White. You want this to be a creature. Unlike some of the other gods, which I think things like Clothis you can get by with if it never transforms in a game. Heliod, you really need to make that 5-5 five, five body, and therefore you're pretty hard-priced in to mono white some splash setups you could do as well but ultimately i think this is going to be the mono white card in the set uh but it certainly rejuvenates the archetype and gives it a chance to shine for the first time in a very long time yeah and again similar to nightmare shepherd this kind of comes as a package right because daxos blessed by the sun is also a very very strong card for that archetype that happens to work very well with heliod because of the soul warden ability so you get to grow your team very quickly. And then, hey, if you need some more uh, lifelink triggers, Heliod is there to help you out. Heliod is only three mana. Like, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that, like, Crocs is only two and Heliod's only three. But those cards would be significantly worse for an extra mana. But it just it feels like we're getting, like, a bargain at that price, you know? Agreed. Yeah, three mana f- Three mana five five certainly can get the job done when you're trying to do the classic mono white thing where your A plan is beat down, but you want to have some kind of wrinkle you can throw into the mid and late game that where you can still squeeze out wins and have some kind of value engine going. Heliod really checks all those boxes for you. Right. Uh, your opponent plays Shatter the Sky. You get to draw a card. Hopefully you're sandbagging something like an Arcanist Owl or whatever that you can use to just turn it on right away and continue hitting them. So the indestructible aspect of it is certainly very powerful and any any creature mirror, it's just going to dominate. It's going to make all of your creatures uh, super huge very quickly. And all the lifelink is just going to do the thing where it lets you win races pretty easily too. Have you gotten up to anything weird with this card yet? Anything unexpected? 
a treacherous blessing, I guess, because Heliod can put counters on enchantments so that he can pump himself when he's not a creature, but also just gets to kill your treacherous blessing. Uh, outside yeah. of that, I don't know. Uh, what were you thinking? No, I, I just don't have much. And that's the reason why I think this card can't be higher, despite the fact that it may be the most powerful card in the set. It, it just doesn't go into enough slots. So I am interested to see if anyone can find new homes from Heliod. It's certainly powerful enough that it justifies that type of exploration. I think this is going to prove to be a mono white card for the most part, though. Yeah, I mean, you, you say that like that's not a Herculean feat, right? Because white was, right. was so that's bad. totally fine. And, right. and now it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like white, white is actually good. I want to play white. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with Daxos in addition to Heliod. You know, if you didn't have one or the other... The, the whole thing looks significantly worse, but together you have a mighty fine deck and one that is going to be able to compete. But I, that's that's impressive to me. The fact that white can go from virtually unplayable to, you know, probably one of the top decks in a set with only a few new card additions and they're not just like downright busted and they basically only go in white decks. I, th- I think that's incredible. Yeah, very true. All right, number two. And this could very easily be number one. And I am shocked. If you asked me where I ranked this card a week ago, it would have not even been close to being on this list. And that is Thassa Deep Dwelling, 3U for a 6-5 legendary enchantment creature god, indestructible. As long as your devotion to blue is less than five, Thassa isn't a creature. At the beginning of your end step, exile up to one other target creature you control, then return that card to the battlefield under your control. That's important. Three U tap another target creature. I should have known something was up with this card. And I guess the set hasn't even come out yet. So I really can't blame myself for being a little bit slower on the uptick. But like you said, this wouldn't, I mean, maybe on the very tail end of my top 10, but even that might be revisionist history. Basically, I wrote an article about Thassa and you would expect to build a bunch of mono blue decks and see what all the mono blue decks look like and that to be the extent of it. But even early on, prior to having the entirety of the spoiler complete, there were tons and tons of directions you could potentially take Thassa. And they were surprising. And in a lot of instances, I was just like, I think you can play this card without it ever having any chance of becoming Correct. a creature. One of the best places I found for it was in Jeskai Fires, just as basically... A secondary engine and granted there you could do like double cavalier of gales and it would ultimately become a creature but you have two cavalier of gales in play you're probably winning anyway but it really shown there because it was a secondary engine to repeatedly blink your cavaliers and also served as a mana sink you could use the tap ability to get some work done because you weren't using your mana for other things because of fires but then i started building with it in elementals and the mono blue decks also looked very strong and then Now I'm thinking, well, wait a second. This just gives me control of your creatures forever. So am I supposed to be playing this alongside the Akroan War and claim the Firstborn to just take all your stuff? And I want to build that deck. And there's so many homes that keep popping up for Thassa. And you can build around it consistently because this card will not die. It's indestructible. And there are some exceptions to that for sure. But for the most part, you play a Thassa, it's going to remain on the battlefield. That makes me interested in it with things like Ox of Agonis, where you can just draw three on every single turn. So the more time you spend around Thassa, the more her possibilities are unveiled. And I just buy this card. I didn't think we'd get to this point. 
And it doesn't hurt that it brings Arcanist Owl to the table as well. Probably the best devotion enabler because it also just finds Thassa for you. Yep. Fibble Thip, uh, even Thassa's Oracle is a fine blink target. Arcanist Owl is obviously sure. great. Blinking Risen Reef, Agent of Treachery is one of the grosser ones I've yep. seen. There's a lot of good things to blink. And like you mentioned, there are combos with the, the various threatened effects. And there's a lot of weird stuff you can actually get up to between fires and Oxvagonus and whatnot. So yeah, Thassa is going to go in a lot of decks. It might not always be a four of. It's definitely going to be a four of in the base blue devotion decks. But you're mm. going to see this in a lot of places you might not have expected to see it. Yeah, my first versions of ramp I built were actually built around Thassa. Again, not something I would have expected, but you mentioned Agent of Treachery. I topped out my ramp decks at four Agent of Treachery on the top end with Thassa, and I'll just take all your permanents. Thank you very much. There is, of course, the Risen Reef interaction. And when you blink Risen Reef, it's bigger than just getting a card because if you have multiple Risen Reefs, sometimes you're getting four cards in every blink. That'll snowball out of control real quickly. Of course, there's Uro. Now, it dies when you blink it, but when a card has escape, you don't always mind if it's dying and you don't mind getting those rebuys. Maybe I need to look at it with Croxa as well. I don't know. There's just so, so many cards you want to play in combination with Thassa and they have shocked me quite frankly. And any of these combinations, when they come together, they're good enough. Like these are constructed playable things. I think it's probably too late to get this card at this point. It sounds like the word is out. People are as hyped as we are, uh, but you go back a week. This was definitely the sleeper in the set. Yeah, Thassa's were like $8 a week ago, right? Yeah, I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. Yeah, there's a period where basically like every Mythic was just a flat $20 on SCG or whatever. And it's like, okay, this is clearly not correct. And I think that that has mostly righted itself at this point. Yep. Well, Brian, our number one card, much to my dismay, is Euro. Titan of Nature's Wrath, 1GU66, Legendary Creature Elder Giant. When this enters the battlefield, sacrifice it unless it escaped. Whenever this enters the battlefield or attacks, you gain three life and draw a card. Then you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Escape, GG, UU, exile five other cards from your graveyard. Okay, so... I think we started trending in this direction a few weeks ago. Uro, on its face, very powerful. We were into it. Everyone else was into it. This was poised to be the standout mythic. And I think that holds for week one. I will say that I think our top three cards are all super close in power level. And we debated exactly where these three were going to fall. Ultimately, Uro gets to start at number one because it has a really, really good foundation to build around. There, are, I mean, Simic decks have dominated standard since rotation. This is a huge, huge tool for Simic. It plays well with the type of strategy Simic likes to lean into. There are huge payoffs on the top end. There's more consistent ramp all over the place. And this card just generates so, so much advantage for the person casting it and will do so throughout the game because of its escape ability. It's hard to pass on Uro. I don't think it's enabling anything new in the format. It's just reinforcing already existing ideas. So... To that end, I wouldn't fault anyone who... I mean, you have to respect this card. It has to be near the top of your list. But if you didn't want it in the number one slot, I understand why. I just think this is the card that immediately slots four of into a bunch of existing decks. And those decks are 100% tier one right out the gate. 
I do too. It's just boring. I know. I know it is. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a very clearly good card. I don't know. I mean, three mana, you get a gross spiral and three life. The three life is not trivial and it just keeps coming back as a nope. six, six and it gains you more advantage. Yada, yada, yada. You know, uh, card is definitely very good. The mana cost is somewhat prohibitive, but like you mentioned, Simic has been very good and basically all over the place. And that is going to continue, especially as they continue to get new toys and they basically have. Uh, I think Thassa is going to contribute to that to some degree, but uh, Euro or Uro, whatever you want to call it, is almost certainly just going to be a four of in a lot of these Simic decks, regardless of what their end game actually is. I guess I can get some complaint equity out of the way. We talk about these mythics. All of them are four ofs. Just every single one of them are cards you want to play in high, high numbers. And isn't that not supposed to be what mythics are? Aren't they supposed to be like big flashy cards that aren't just the best card in the entire set? Top three cards, Heliod, Thassa, Oro, all four ofs in basically any deck that plays them. There's some exceptions for Thassa, but the hard devoted Thassa deck certainly going to play four copies. So I, I think that metric for Mythics is just out the window. They're just the best cards in the set period at this point. Uh, yeah, Clothis, Ox, Croxa also making our top 10. And those yep. are all Mythics. Granted, like all these cards are flashy. Like they do kind of fit the Mythic paradigm, right? But I agree with you that you know, like the, the gods in OG Theros, I think, did a much better job of it where it's like, you know, you play like two Nylias sometimes or like you play anywhere from zero to four Perforos to fit, depending on what your deck is trying to do. Yeah, Thassa was the one exception. Right. And, uh, you know, that was the three mana one, right? And Heliod is the three mana one now. And you are right. just going to play four copies of that because that's why your deck exists. So I, I guess Clothis also fits that bill because uh, it's another three mana one, but yeah, it's, it mm. is, it is kind of weird. I think a set where you have both gods and Titans, it makes sense for the mythic creatures to be a little bit better and ubiquitous than average. Uh, and it's also worth noting that like there are three mythic planeswalkers in the set that are all solid role players and none of them made our top 10. So the power Okay. was juiced in the creature section, right? Not in the Planeswalker section, which I think is a thing that most people are happy with. So I don't know. I'm not mad. How about the, how about the answer section? Let's juice the answer section. How come none of those ever make our top tens anymore? Do you drag to the underworld? What are you talking about? It missed. It, it didn't get there. <laughs> like that's as good as we got for answers. You could argue the wraths are in the range too. even cling to dust, which I think is a very powerful card, kind of an answer, but, None of these making our top 10. You used to be the person who threw an answer on every single top 10. Even you couldn't do it this go around. Well, drag is there in, uh, I don't know, in theory, alongside Nightmare Shepherd. But drag has also not been like a four of in a lot of my decks. So, Right. Right. Yeah. The, the threats are just so much better this time around. And I mean, I guess that's been the case for a while now. But I think that these are somewhat snowball-y in that if you get to untap with them, you're going to have a huge advantage, but they have the advantage that they actually just end the game very quickly rather than, you know... Right, like that. Your your Nyssa crisis thing actually takes three, four turns for you to kill your opponent. Yeah, games ending is a very positive thing, so I, I will give a plus there. I also... 
I don't want to end on a negative note because I really like this set. It's been a lot of fun to deck build around. I appreciate the power level of the Planeswalkers in this set being a bit lower, being dramatic must build arounds to really leverage them. That was a nice surprise. So I, I don't want it to sound like I'm down on this set. It's very cool. A lot of really fun decks coming out of it. Ultimately, we have to see how the standard format shakes out. That tells us whether a set really deserves praise and it takes a few weeks to get to that point where you understand how things are going to be shaped. But I am optimistic about how this will enter into the metagame. The snowballs have to be checked somehow. I hope the tools are there. I think the tools are there. I would say if you're building for week one, if you're already on the ladder trying to win, account for the ramp snowballs. You must have some way to interact with that. Account for what mono black is capable of and the immense life gain and damage it can produce out of nowhere. And those have to be your starting points for the format. Once you do that, you might find some success with a roguish build. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, I also think that this set is actually just really good. I think that there is a pretty good distribution in power throughout almost all of the colors. Like we noted, red is kind of getting a little bit of the shaft here, but I think that that sort of makes sense if they don't want aggro to be super prevalent. Like it's very clear that the red aggro cards have been toned down quite a bit in the last few yep. sets. So I, I kind of get where they're going with that direction. And now you look at things like mono white and mono black, like they have good aggro setups, even mono green gruel, like all that stuff is kind of there. You still have the mid range rampy stuff. You have a bunch of good control tools and everything like, you have tools to kind of do whatever you want. And then there's also weirdo sideways stuff like enigmatic incarnation, right? And doom foretold and stuff like that, right. like all these wild build arounds. So I've actually had a lot of fun with this set because there, yeah, there's just a lot of playable cards. A lot of them are encouraging you to do different things. And it just made it so I wanted to build a bunch of different decks. And it wasn't like, oh, okay, you know, mono green aggro right like we just fill it out with the best mono green aggro cards it's like no there's like a lot of different decisions to actually make even for something like that and we're we're only in a six set standard right like we get two more sets to play around and flesh out these ideas which is kind of sweet yeah very cool and i already see the potential for churn here there are decisions i'm making for slots on the curve where i am faced with multiple multiple options it doesn't feel like anything just hard out classes, anything else, for the most part, there there are some exceptions, things like Oro are pretty absurd on rate, but we've gotten away from the Oko type setups that we were seeing previously. And also there's nothing in this set that makes me lose my mind the way something like Once Upon a Time did when I saw it in the last set. So that is a good step to having a more stable standard for sure. Yeah, and it should obviously be noted that, you know, we are singing the praises of this set and its potential impact on standard after a bunch of cards got banned. Right. So absolutely. We are in a good place now and it, it came at a cost obviously. So uh, I'm, I'm yes. just happy with where we are now and let's, let's get to Bruin. Let's get to plan. Good idea. Cool. All right. Time for question of the week this week. The question comes from Delver guy. And I believe you asked for questions pertaining to standard or the top 10. Is that accurate? Uh, I basically said we were talking about the t top 10, told folks to go ahead and ask 
whatever they wanted to ask tangentially related with the idea that we'd be discussing the top cards in the format. So you don't have to ask about those. Uh, Also, I'll take this moment to note, I did it last week. Not many folks showed up. I answered all of the questions from our Patreon over on our YouTube page. Uh, I will do it again, but this is the last time. I'm I'm warning everyone now. You come see me answer those questions. There's a lot of little tidbits, little insights there over on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash arena decklist. If it gets better downloads this week, I'll keep doing it in the future. Otherwise, this is it. Last chance, listeners. Dude, I, I, I saw that it went up. I was one of those listens. Okay. Thank you, Gerald. You did the appropriate thing as a supporter of the Arena Decklist podcast. Now everyone else has to step up, come check out me answering all the questions, but only one can make the cut on this here podcast, of course. Yeah, I was all about it. I thought you did a great job. Uh, I'm sad that more people do not feel the need to actually click on content like that. What's the number you're shooting for? You know, like- I will do it again. Retweet this a million times and I get free chicken nuggets for life or whatever. I will do it again if we get- 4,000 views. Now that's only about one fifth of our listening audience. So only one out of five of you needs to go and check out the answering of the Patreon questions to ensure it happens again. Tell your friends. That's a lot, dude. I know it is. I kind of don't want to do it again, but this puts the onus <laughs> on our listeners to step up. And look, if you, if our listeners ask for anything and show up and support it, I will do literally anything for our listeners. I will run through a brick wall for our listeners, but Ooh, it yeah. is a large time investment and I only want to do it if a bunch of people are going to come. So, All right. Delver guy says, the only question that matters to me is how does this affect Pioneer for the PTs? And that is a legit question. And I've kind of been waiting for this because like I like Pioneer a lot and I feel like there are a lot of missing holes in a lot of the various decks. And whenever a new set comes out for standard, I wanted to be like, oh yeah, I have to take like a hard look for Pioneer. And I didn't take a hard look. I took like a soft look and I was kind of disappointed. Yeah. Well, maybe that's like on the heels of Throne of Eldraine. Our expectations are a little high right now, but I feel similarly to you. I don't think there is a huge pioneer shakeup coming, but I say that and there is one huge glaring exception to that, which is of course Heliod, its combination with Walking Ballista. This is good enough for Pioneer. The question is, what shell is it going to show up in? Talks of like preemptive banning, little silly to me. I need to see what this card is capable of. But 100%, you have to explore this before the PT. I expect everyone else will be too. Yeah, what kind of shells are you envisioning this? Like, are you trying to go like full on combo or is it just like, I'm going to play Walking Ballista in my white beatdown deck and maybe this comes together at some point? Yeah, I think you're just supposed to play a white beatdown deck and you get the best of both worlds in most instances. Heliod gets to be a really good card as a 5-5-3 mana beater and also gets to occasionally kill your opponent from nowhere. And then maybe in the sideboard, you can adjust a little bit and play a secondary game plan that's more focused on the Heliod combo or even just completely abandon it and go all in on just sheer aggression. I think both of those are appealing options to me and... There's a huge incentive to be monocolored in Pioneer right now because of the way the mana bases are. So given that, I would expect Heliod to continue that trend and keep pushing folks in that direction. Also, white aggro was kind of fine in Pioneer to begin with. 
The question is, does it hold up when people are targeting it? And I think Heliod Ballista can do a good job of shoring up some of the weaknesses that would otherwise be present uh, if it was just a white beatdown deck. So I don't have anything flashy to do with it yet. I'm not doing any crazy builds that really look to go all in on Heliod. I think in modern, you can do that way easier. Obviously, you have a redundant combo element with something like Spike Feeder. Uh, and then you have all of your tutor effects that you can use to find Heliod. So that makes more sense in modern. In Pioneer, I just want to start with the fair deck and then see where we go from there. Yeah, it's basically where I am too. And I built a modern deck that I actually kind of like, which is Mox Amber with a bunch of the legendary one drops. And now you have Daxos to go along with Thalia and stuff like that. You actually get to play Smuggler's Copter in modern if you want to. And Okay. I don't know. It seems solid if, if people are ramping a bunch. I mean, Leon and Arbiter and even Mind Sensor, if you want it, are very, very good cards against those people. Uh, as far as Pioneer is concerned, I think that Heliod and Daxos are quite good. I'm less high on the Walking Ballista thing. I think it is fine and cool and whatnot, but likely not entirely necessary. I think you're going to win the vast majority of your games based on damage, and I don't think that you gain much by trying to set up some ridiculous combo elements when you should just have it as a backdoor. So I'm right there with you. I think Mm -hmm. Mono White is good. You can do a a light splash, and I mean like a light, light splash, but that's about it. And I like Oxvagonis for a lot of the same reasons why I like it in Standard. Uh, There's a, a lot of redundancy with things like is it phoenix uh, obviously you have to compete with treasure cruise and i think that the ox probably loses that fight but then you get to start looking at playing the ox in other decks that maybe resemble phoenix but don't have blue in it maybe a little black phoenix maybe uh i mean yeah, yeah you get thoughtsies croxa yeah yeah, you, I mean, Thoughtseize and Push are good. Uh, you need some way to refill or some way to cantrip a decent amount. I tried doing Phoenix in like Mardu Pyromancer before, and with things like Thoughtseize, you just right. go hellbent way too quickly. So you need something. Obviously, Ox kind of fills that to some degree, assuming you're able to put cards in your graveyard. But I, I believe, I think we can do it. We do have a black almost cantrip in cling to dust which is a card that i think also will get some run in pioneer i I don't know that you can just like play for cling to dust that sounds a little speculative to me but if the format moves in a certain direction i don't even think that's that bad like just cycling cling to dust in a ton of spots could get the job done there is some reliance on graveyards in pioneer right now i don't think it's hard enough where like you're willing to commit to that as your de facto cantrip though yeah i agree and and what else i mean with devotion being a thing in Pioneer, like it's super relevant, right? And this is a devotion set. I mean, Thassa is okay. The green decks get an upgraded Nylea's Disciple, but not a whole lot of stuff, actually. No, you would expect more. You would expect more given that these devotion strategies are already a feature of pioneer granted it's mostly green that has seen any real success but i i've seen basically every devotion deck float around at some point i wonder if mono black can look to use any of the tools that the mono black decks of new standard will be using nightmare shepherd just doesn't seem good enough for pioneer to me even with like gray merchant synergies but 
maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe you just throw Thoughtseize in what will be the new standard mono black devotion deck, and that'll check out really well. You know, the cat oven synergy has proven itself to basically be good enough for Pioneer. So maybe we go further down that road and we get a mono black deck that works for us. Yeah, I'm more interested in trying to utilize Woe Strider to sort of rejuvenate mm. the sacrifice decks. Like those decks already had access to things like Nantico Husk, but I think Woe Strider is for the most part a better version of those. So mostly, yeah, unless you're going all in on the husk itself, which hasn't been a realistic strategy for a while now. Yeah, not really. And then, yeah, you mentioned Croxa briefly, and I said this about Standard 2, where I just don't think that red, black, mid range, grind them out type of things are that good. But right now, Pioneers also just like a lot of creature decks, and that sort of mm-hmm. strat is quite good against them. So I don't know. Maybe you're just like a bad version of the big red deck. And uh, maybe that's still fine. I don't know. Maybe you're a big red that dominates the mirror. I don't know. But it it just seems like you still have a a problem with like ramp and things like that. And then uh, the other card I like is Soul Guide Lantern, where I think this is the best graveyard hate, unless you have access to something like Leyline of the Void. Yeah, Soul Guide Lantern looks very strong. I can see that being a feature of Pioneer going forward. I'll also briefly mention the White Saga that gets you a planes and wall of omens. If blue white control is interested in playing some defense, this might be a card we see a little bit of. It does a good job of doing a little bit of everything defensive. You get your blocker, you get to make your land drop, gain a small, small amount of life. You expect there to be some synergies if that card is actually good enough for pioneer, but I could see it being a tool that those decks occasionally utilize. Dude, I would love to repeal that card. I don't think it does anything, but I would love to do it. You're talking my kind of magic right now. Yeah, so a a little bit light. I think that uh, Daxos being a good two-drop for white helps a lot, and obviously Heliod is quite good, so white gets a little shot in the arm, which is nice because it needed it, and then yeah, black gets some more tools, Ox maybe does some stuff, and then like a sideboard graveyard hate card. Cool. Uh, But overall, not making a huge amount of waves. I really do think that well, I guess like a week ago, I thought this. Like, if you could just build a deck that was very good against creature decks, you'd have a great time at the Pro Tour. But now, mid range is starting to do a lot better online. And I think that people are already starting to figure that out and crack that code. So now maybe it's like, oh, you need to just play something that beats mid range. And none of the cards from this set actually help you do that or create like a new strategy that allows you to do that. So, mostly a wash. Yeah, it is a little weird given how much Pioneer is based on M20, Throne of Eldraine. Like that, those are the core of the format right now. It's weird to be talking about only three to four cards, and I'm sure we're missing something. Like we're we're not nailing it. Something else will show up and make a difference in the format. But I I do think we are in line for um for a drop off from what we saw from the last two sets for sure. I agree, but I ain't mad. Yeah, probably a good thing. Like Likely a very good thing for the health of both Pioneer and especially Standard. Yep. All right, that's it. Two podcasts in one day. I'm good. You should sign us out, and then I'm going to probably just go build more Theros decks, I suppose. Right there with you. That's game. Good luck.